If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board, while Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard. Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. All right, um, sort of stuff going on today, but a lot of fallout and 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 just carryovers from uh, the, the week that we've had, which has been quite busy, I might add. Uh, the big news closer to home is uh, Monty McNaughton, who is the uh, Minister of Labor for uh, the Ford Cabinet, has stepped aside. He's taken a new job. So uh, there you go. Um, this had been in, in the works, I guess, for a while, and uh, he was pretty successful as, uh, as a minister. So uh, I'm sure... Uh, the, the private industry did come calling, and uh, he took the gig. So another cabinet shuffle coming for uh, the, the uh, premier as uh, he deals with uh, the green belt issues and everything else that's uh, that's going on. What else we got? Uh, President Zelensky is in Ottawa, addressed Parliament, uh, and has been given more aid from Ottawa to the tune of about six hundred and fifty million dollars. Uh, and of course, as you can imagine, got a standing ovation when he came into uh, the House of Commons to speak. And here's uh, a few clips of what President Zelensky of the Ukraine had to say. Ukraine gained independence. Ukraine is restoring its own historic memory. Dozens of other countries, their parliaments, their governments have already recognized Holodomor at the genocide of the Ukrainian people. There is something that has not changed either in 40 years since the monument in Edmonton was built or in 90 years since the Holodomor. Moscow now, as always, is bent on controlling Ukraine and makes use of all available means to do that, including genocide. It is genocide. What? Russian occupiers are doing to Ukraine. And when we want to win, when we call on the world to support us, it is not just about an ordinary conflict. It is about saving lives of millions of people. Literally, physical salvation. Ordinary women and men, children, our families, whole communities, entire cities, Russia's destruction of Mariupol, of Valnavaha, or Bakhmut, or any other city or village in Ukraine must not go unpunished. Life and justice must prevail everywhere in Ukraine and for all Ukrainians. This Russian aggression must end with our victory. Yes. Yes. So that so that Russia will never bring back genocide to Ukraine and will never ever try to do so. Moscow must lose once and for all. 
and it will lose. There you have uh, portions of the uh, speech given by Ukraine President Zelensky in the House of Commons uh, earlier on today. And of course, a jam packed house and uh, lots of support for uh, the Ukraine president and more aid for Ukraine uh, from Canada in the form of six hundred and fifty million dollars. Uh, passionate speech and um, and a blast reality, perhaps for the rest of the world. All right. What else we got going on? Uh, Ipsos new poll for global. Uh, the news continues to be bad for Justin Trudeau in the polls. And the other interesting part of this is the NDP liberal partnership uh, is not seeming to benefit either party. Uh, at this point, and there's starting to be some rumble within the NDP party as if this is going to be worth it for them or when the appropriate time is to yank the plug so they don't uh, go down with the ship as well. So uh, fascinating uh, in regard to that, and we'll we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Also, a little later on, uh, the Education Minister, Stephen Lecce, is going to be joining us and talk about uh, a meeting has been reached, uh, sorry, an agreement, tentative agreement has been reached with uh, ETFO uh, support education workers. So we'll talk about that coming up uh, as well. And perhaps some of the other things that are of concern going around uh, in regard to education in this uh, in this province. Have you ever dreamed about winning the big one? Yeah, what you do, <laughs> what you wouldn't do. Uh, the 649 jackpot uh, Going to be a big one. If not, if no one wins on Saturday, then Wednesdays will not only see a new record reach, but also a guaranteed winner. As uh, the the six four nine jackpot, uh, somebody could get a record win in Canada. Let's bring in Tony Batani, spokesperson, Ontario Lottery and Gaming Commission, and here now, Tony. Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Scott, it's always great talking to you, especially when we're talking about winning. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is, considering where we are in the world, this is a pretty interesting conversation and a fun one to be had. And I'm sure uh, has a lot of people dreaming of just this sort of prize. So tell us, what's the difference with this uh, 649 uh, draw compared to others? How is it different now? Yeah, so for 649, we made some changes last year. And uh, basically, there's a kind of a progressive jackpot. So uh, like the other ones, like Lotto Max, where it grows if it's not one, this one is just a little, little bit different. And when we reach $68 million, that's the cap of it. And the the newest element are these gold ball draws. So what happens is uh, you can still pick your numbers, one through 49, you can pick six of them, no no problem. You can get $5 million jackpot for that one. But because you bought that ticket, another number is generated, and that number goes into the draw, like a raffle system. So only those specific numbers will be drawn. And uh, when that number is drawn, you're guaranteed a million dollars. Then there's another slight draw specifically just for that number that was picked, and there are 30 balls, 29 white balls, one gold ball. When the white ball drops, you get that million dollars. If the gold ball drops, you get the jackpot, starts at 10 million. Well, no one, that gold ball jackpot, or that gold ball has not dropped for now almost 30 draws. We're at 29 draws. Hmm. And if it drops, you're guaranteed that prize. So Saturday's draw is 66 million. There are two balls left, a white one 
and a gold one. We'll have to see what drops. If that white one drops, someone's winning a million bucks. That's not a bad thing. But then the next draw on Wednesday will be 68 million. That gold ball is the only one left. It's a guaranteed win. We've never had that before because, again, Lotto Max is based on numbers you pick. But because right. this one is from a kind of a raffle system, then we're get, we can say this, that someone will become a multimillionaire of $68 million on Wednesday night. So we hope so, we get to that Wednesday draw of $68 millions, but still, hey, 66 that's nothing to yeah. sneeze at either. <laughs> no problem. You no problem, Tony. You keep the last two. I'll go with that. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> so the the difference is when you pick a number, you never know if it's going to be drawn. The di- the advantage here is when you register your number, it does go into the second draw, and one of those numbers is guaranteed to win. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So again, think of it like a raffle. So when you yeah, buy yeah. that ticket, you can still pick those six out of forty nine numbers. Another yep. number is generated for you, another 10-digit number, and that goes into the draw. And again, someone is guaranteed. Minimum a million bucks, possibly for Saturday's draw, 66. And if we get to Wednesday, 68. So, it, you know, it's it's always exciting when we get these big jackpots. It takes a while to get there. I Listen, I live in a world of randomness, chance, and awe. And <laughs> you never know. You never know what's going to happen. So, uh, again, I can't buy the ticket. So my excitement comes from do these jackpots grow? When will they win? Getting ready for them. Talking to to folks like you, to the folks in Hamilton, to to try to get them excited as well, too. So this is is how I spend my Fridays. (laughs) Do Do you get to present the check, Tony? I get to present the check. So I've been with OLG for 13 years. Yeah. And over that 13 years, I've tallied the amount of big checks i've physically given out and it probably is about three billion dollars wow and slipping it's it's slipped yeah it slipped right (laughs) it slipped right through your fingers tony in one and out the other wow the the jar is full of used tic tacs and some dust that's that's right yeah yeah a couple of donut wrappers so uh (laughs) what is that experience like when you because obviously this you know prizes like this they're life-changing uh you know even a million bucks what what uh, how do you describe the reaction it is so everyone is in shock Everyone is in awe. It does not sink in. And then you present them that check and they, everyone is, you know, the, the crowd is kind of wild, especially when we have a little celebration, a little media event, the crowd goes wild. And those people are, the winners are quiet and it just takes them a few minutes. <laughs> and then, and then when everything's over, then they're like, can we do that again? <laughs> but it is, it, you know what? It, because again, we can't. All geo employees cannot play the lottery. Our yeah. our partners, our spouses can. So you know, I'm telling my wife to go buy a ticket and stuff. That's funny. But it is it is it's unlike any other job I've ever had. That um, I see I see you know these lives change for for the better, and it's it's always a lot of fun. And um, again, no one's asking me to go dig a ditch, which is great. Nothing against that, but I'd rather <laughs> give out the I'd rather give out the big checks. It's a lot of fun. You know, it's kind of like a wedding. You, once it's over, you go, sheesh, that passed. Uh, can we do that again? I missed it. <laughs> I I was, you're like a deer in the headlights of a car. Uh, absolutely. And you know, what? one of the, and just quickly. So um, now that we do electronic transfers and you see, you know, everything's online type of thing too. We've had winners that uh, we say to them, listen, you know, the money is 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 coming. And it take, it's a bit of a process because again, to transfer, you know, 
68, yeah. $70 million takes, takes a little bit of time. And we've been there when they show us their bank account and you see, you know, 500 bucks, a thousand dollars in the bank account. And then you see it change to 50, 60, 70 million dollars. And we were in we were in a room one time and I left the winners just in a room for for literally three minutes. I walked away and I heard down the hall. And I said, guaranteed the money went into their bank account. And I ran back and that was it. too. So. It's you know it's so it's so wild to, to to see that happen right in front of your eyes. Again, I wish it were my bank account. Yeah, but the next best thing is to see those. Always, letters. always joy when the big check clears, Tony. Yeah. That's for sure. Uh, Tony Patani with his spokesperson for the Ontario Lottery and Gaming Commission. Six four nine could be part of history if you want to get involved for the next couple of draws. Tony, thanks for the time. Good luck. Have fun. Thanks, Scott. Have a great weekend. Thank you, sir. This guy's been busy this week. Lots going on at Queen's Park. Uh, Greenbelt reversal earlier in the week just, I think, stunned everybody as well. Uh, announcements today that uh, Minister uh, Monty McNaughton stepping down, which will obviously trigger a cabinet shuffle. And a new deal with the ETFO education workers, the support workers, have uh, uh, a tentative deal, it looks like. Let's bring in Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. He's here now. Colin, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. All right, let's start for the current stuff and move backwards. Uh, ETFO education workers, these aren't the teachers. These are the support workers. What do we know here? Yeah, that's correct. They, they say that there's been a tentative agreement with the central table for the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, and this is the education support workers. So essentially, you know, the way they bargain is they've got a central table to deal with issues that would impact all of the workers, right? Like things like pay, maybe uh, sick leave, et cetera, et cetera. And then they have local tables where they deal with more regional specific issues. So at the central table, they say that they've had some kind of a tentative agreement uh, dealing specifically with their education uh, workers. Uh, so, so these would, you know, more than likely be uh, about 3,500 or so people, uh, early childhood educators, education support personnel, uh, professional support personnel. So this is good news, which means, you know, there is light at the end of the tunnel here that there is some movement at the bargaining table. The teachers themselves, that wing of the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, which represents public high school, uh, public elementary teachers, they're still holding strike votes. So from the teacher's perspective, that has not resolved yet. This is just the education workers who have you know, come to a new agreement with, uh, with the government. So we'll see. We don't have the details just yet, but we'll see exactly what comes of this and whether this can help the teacher side of things. Uh, we remember last time uh, the minister announced a tentative deal. The union came out and said, oh, not so fast. Are we expected to hear the same thing? What's their reaction? Do we know? Yeah, well, we're, I mean, I, I think it's important to note that we might be talking about different things here, right? So the tentative deal that the government came up with, with OSSTF, which is secondary school teachers um, in the public side. Right, yeah. Uh, the, the deal was essentially... We'll negotiate for as long as it takes for about a couple of uh, months. And then after that, we'll send it to binding arbitration. Right. So this is not that deal. That deal mm -hmm. has been given or offered to other unions, but the Elementary Teachers Federation says, no, we're not interested in it. And we don't know if that deal will actually be ratified by members of OSSTF representing those public high school teachers, because there is some dissatisfaction among the ranks about, you know, making a deal with the Ford government, especially at a time when a lot of people are distrustful of the government. So we still have to see where that will 
um, end up. It does get very confusing in this nego- in this education space, I will say, because you're dealing with different unions, yeah. different deals, different contracts. But at the end of the day, disruption is still on the horizon, and we don't know exactly whether the government will be able to kind of veer everything off that path. That so one, so a deal in one of these uh, with one of these other situations doesn't mean that the, it's positive news for the other situations necessarily. No, not necessarily. I mean, because they don't all negotiate as a collective. Yeah. Right? You're dealing with four different teachers' unions. One of them is elementary teachers in the public system. One of them is high school teachers in the public system. Another one is English Catholic teachers from you know JK to grade twelve, and another one deals with the uh, the French language teachers in uh, the French school boards. So you're dealing with you know four very different contracts for very different um, school settings and spaces, right? What's true in elementary isn't true in high school, mm-hmm. and so that's one of the reasons why. You know, they try to tackle these all together, and maybe some of the compensation offers from the government might be the same. Uh, but ultimately, what the actual you know deals that they come up with, they they can be different, right? OSSTF, as an example, the last time around was the last union to sign on to deal with the government. So um, there there there's a lot of ebb and flow in these. All right, uh, cabinet shuffle coming up uh, uh, due to the uh, leaving of Monty McNaughton, who's gone back to the or has gone to the uh, the private sector. What does that mean for uh, shuffling of cabinet? How big is this? Do you think this will be? It's just a minor uh, shuffle here. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, this is this is turning out to be a very minor shuffle uh, because they had to replace. You know, Monty McNaughton, Khalid Rashid, uh, who resigned as well, uh, and then, you know, the other people who have replaced them. So the environment minister, David Piccini, is now moving to labor. Uh, there is a new replacement in, uh, in environment. That's Andrea Kanjan. She is a Barry area MPP. Uh, and then, and then uh, Todd McCarthy, who's from uh, the Ajax Pickering area, he's going to go in uh, to the the Ministry of Public Service and Business Delivery, which deals with license plates and um, you know your your health card and driver's licenses stuff like that. But the most important thing here is Monty McNaughton resigning. I, I can't even tell you how how big of a shake that is to this government that's already kind of shaking at its core, right? Um, Monty McNaughton was not involved in this Greenbelt scandal at all. He had nothing to do with it, and so isn't resigning because of the Greenbelt scandal, but just felt like now was the time for him to go into the private sector, perhaps make some money and then figure out what he's going to do next. But the fact that a minister who doesn't have anything to do with the Greenbelt scandal is seeing the writing on the wall and deciding to leave while the getting is still good, you know, I think telegraphs a message to a lot of people at home in terms of what is happening with this government and should also leave the government feeling a bit what this means for them. Uh, Doug Ford was elected with 83 seats. He's now down to 79. <laughs> and, and that volumes about where this government has has been in the little over one year since the election. All right. Huge green belt reversal earlier on this week. Fallout from that. W- w- where does this go from here? Yeah, well, it's it's not over. Just because the government has kind of reversed the decision, there will be a lot of progressive conservative supporters who were on the fence, who were really, you know, did not like the, the decision that will now say, okay, fine, he's putting it back, he's apologized, you know, that they're willing to make amends. Um, there are lots of other voters who may have 
seen this as a breach of trust. And once trust is broken, it's really difficult to kind of glue that back together. Uh, but, but also, I mean, the government is going to be facing a lot more questions and investigations potentially, right? You've got the RCMP still determining whether or not they're going to launch an investigation. And then on top of that, you also have um, you know, the entire Queen's Park Press Gallery that's looking into every potential angle to come out of this story. It'll take about 30 days for them to be able to because they have to go through a public consultation process. Uh, but ultimately, you know, what, what this has also done is created a crack between the premier and his caucus because the caucus is upset that they weren't consulted. They've been hearing from their supporters that there is not uh, a lot of trust in the government and the premier. So you're going to have a lot of unhappy campers. And how that materializes in the long run, we have to see. It'll be interesting to see if how much or if this does put pressure, more pressure on municipalities and developers to get it done now that the green belt is off the table. I think, I mean, I, I think that pressure has always been there and it doesn't necessarily take it off the table or, or do anything more to it. I, I think, you know, now it poses a new question for the government, right? You have to keep in mind that the government's been trying to build houses or see as many houses built every single year. But the, the, the housing construction starts, which is how they measure uh, their success has really been languishing. Um, yeah. In fact, in August, the number of homes they built was just 3% higher than what they built in August of 2022. So they're not seeing a dramatic increase, and they're going to have to do something to alleviate that problem. The green belt was one of their solutions. Going back now means it's back to the drawing board to figure yeah. out other ways to, to get that uh, 1.5 million home targets. Colin DeMello with us, uh, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News, covering lots going on there this week. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight for more. Uh, Colin, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right. We remember, uh, especially as uh, the global pandemic started to ease off, when people could still afford to, uh, uh, a lot of people all of a sudden started traveling at once, and then there was backlogs, there was passport issues, uh, um, lack of uh, staff and such at airports, and, and it, it really did get out of hand. And I, I remember talking to our next guest about how they were going to add staff to help deal with the backlog of air passenger complaints at Canada's uh, uh, transport regular uh, uh, regulator, rather. And as we as we say this. Uh, they've hit a new high of 57,000. Uh, they've got 57,000 complaints of dissatisfaction over cancellations, compensations, and this is three and a half years after uh, COVID-19. Let's talk more about all of this. Kabor Lukacs with us, President, Air Passenger Rights Advocacy Group, and here now. Kabor, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon. Well, I remember talking to you, Gabor, about how they were going to add more staff so they could address more of these complaints. And I remember then we were talking about, you know, it's odd to add staff for this and yet not actually fix the complaints. So did they add staff to this department? Is this helping at all? It is not helping at all, though, to the credit, it must be said that they have not uh, started a new process. Unfortunately, a new process that the government has established uh, it may result in some decrease in backlog, but it is it is a star chambers process. It lacks any transparency, and for all we know, they may just trash some of the complaints or send away passengers with valid cases without any meaningful hearing or or adjudication. Has any of this improved over the last couple of years? Because we remember coming out of the pandemic, what it was like, but it seems it's still persisting, getting better. The root cause here is. Not just the process, it's the root cause of this is 
how poorly the APPR were written. We cautioned the government uh, for many years since 2017 that they are on the wrong path. They should be following the European Union's gold standard, but the government instead did something entirely different, which is disproportionately complex, complicated. Just to give you an example, for adjudicating a $400 compensation claim, more than 1,000 pages of documents are needed. That's unreasonable and unjustifiable. <laughs> and that is where this backlog is really coming from. On the one hand, the airlines disobeyed the law. On the other hand, the system was built by the airlines for the airlines to be so difficult for passengers and even adjudicators to navigate. It is virtually impossible to quickly, efficiently enforce the passenger's rights. You've talked about this passenger rights and, and what they do, the gold standard in other places and such. Um, obviously, as you just said, the difference is it's the it's the airline companies that are writing this one. Um, is there any sort of because it's pretty obvious this is a problem. It's pretty obvious that it is dealt with in other ways around the world. Uh, at, at what point does that message get through to government that, you know, it's we got to change this system here? Well, the government is engaging in other window dressing. That's what they have yeah. done in the recent Budget Implementation Act. That's why they created this secretive process where adjudication may, may starting end of this month, become faster, but the outcome is going to be a black box because uh, there will be a general confidentiality, a shot of secrecy around how decisions are being made, what evidence is being used, and so on and so forth, which is clearly wrong, and it's inconsistent with basic constitutional principles. Uh, the real fix would be to actually simplify the regulations, to harmonize it with the European Union's gold standard, and to make the criteria for eligibility compensation so simple that it's really a slum dunk uh, for if the airline doesn't pay. That's really where the problem starts. What does the U.S. do? The U.S. Uh, is in the process of developing more regulation, I understand, but they have only a denied boarding compensation regime. But the U.S. does not have the gold standard of, of passenger rights. It's the European Union that has that. Mm -hmm. So we, we, at this point, we are actually behind even countries like Israel and Turkey, which adopted something similar. Turkey actually just copied the European Union's regulations because they understood that it is the gold standard. Israel did something very similar. But we are very much behind those countries as well, not just the European Union. What are the majority of complaints? Right now, what we are seeing in our Facebook group are uh, could be divided roughly into, into two major categories. One is when a flight is canceled or substantially delayed and the airline does not fulfill its obligation to rebook passengers, obligation that may require them to buy passengers tickets on other airlines. And the airlines just don't like to do that. They just say, well, we don't do it. So what? What will you do? What will you do to me? That kind of that kind of very belligerent attitude that passengers are, are facing from airlines. The other part is um, airlines just not paying compensation out under the APPR and claiming everything in the world to be outside their control, even having enough of their own crew to operate a flight. I guess my point here, Gabor, was that there's nothing new. These are the same old questions, the same old answers, the same old everything. And you'd think with that being the case that they'd be able to solve these issues. Well, if there was any meaning, real will to, to solve the issue, sure. That would, yeah. you know, it wouldn't take that much effort. What it would take is rewrite the APPR to, to meet, to harmonize the European standard and start engaging in massive aggressive enforcement. Right now, the gov one good thing the government did so far was to raise the 
cap for fines that can be issued to airlines when they break the APPR to $250,000 from $25,000. But a federal regulator, the Canadian Transportation Agency, has not bothered to amend the regulations to actually you include those higher fines. So at this point, Parliament actually did some of the work on the issue of fines specifically, but there's no willingness or appetite by the regulator to actually mm-hmm. use the power that they were given to it. Gabor Lukacs with us, President Air Passenger Rights Advocacy Group, backlog of passenger complaints growing, topping 57,000. Gabor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much. You too. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. The great thing about this time of year is... Fall Fairs. We talked to Ancaster yesterday, and today it's going to be Milton. Today, so, you know, get them all in. Why not? 168th edition of to talk more about the Milton Fall Fair. Vince Carrito is with us, first VP of the Milton Fall Fair, and here now. Vince, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Oh, doing great. Thank you so much for having me. All right, Vince. So is it all set up? Is it all ready to go? Are you ready for another big year? Well, you know, I, I'm not sure if you're really ever ready, but uh, yeah, we are. We've got everything uh, lined up and uh, it's, uh, a lot of volunteer hours, but uh, we are ready to give a great show this year. And difference between this and perhaps last year's with the pandemic and such, I'm guessing everything's pretty much back to normal. Uh, yep. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, uh, being a large uh, volunteer organization, it was uh, hard to recover a lot of the uh, the help that uh, that you had after the pandemic. Uh, life's changed. Uh, but we are uh, we're basically back to show. We've got our uh, our our horse shows returned, uh, and we've got uh, all types of displays and exhibits uh, uh, for for everyone. How many volunteers does it take to put this thing on? Oh, geez, uh, I'm going to probably say between uh, our full time year round volunteers and the and the uh, the event, uh, the you know the weekend of uh, upwards of 200, I bet. All right. So what do you got going on this weekend? This one's Friday, uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, correct? Tell everybody where it is, where the Milton Fall Fairgrounds are. Uh, right in the heart of Milton at 136 Robert Street. So if you know where Town Hall is, we're just, uh, just mm-hmm. south of that. Uh, it's a, a large uh, green open space with uh, multiple ag buildings. Um, and uh, this is a, this is a, on the Friday, we usually are our soft opening. We have mostly schools for agricultural exhibits. And then uh, 3 o'clock, uh, we'll be open to the general public. Uh, so there's uh, there's tons of uh, different displays, uh, but uh, you know we uh, we've got our hunter jumper show returning this year. Uh, we've got our uh, diamond the rough dog agility show. Uh, a uh, new one is the farmer bale toss. These are you know all uh, fun activities for for all types of family members. So okay, go back a bit here. Uh, the hail bay is what was the last one? <laughs> the uh, the farmer bale toss. So, uh, and, yeah, just uh, you're going to test your strength. Uh, you know, just like if you were on the farm there, uh, yeah. we're going to be going yeah. to the and, and And you mentioned something else before that. Uh, Hunter and what was that? Uh, what we So, you know, uh, we talked about the pandemic kind of shutting things down, but horse, uh, horse shows were dramatically impacted. Right. Uh, so we went, you know, the first uh, year without any, any horse show at a, at a fair. That's kind of a, a big shock. But uh, we were, were happy to announce that we were able to get our – our uh, jumper classic show uh, horse show uh, return, and that'll be that'll be tomorrow. Uh, so that's going to be a big one. Everyone loves to see horses at a, at a fair, of course. And so let's talk about uh, some of the other stuff going on. Truck and tractor pull, demolition derby as well. That's correct. Yep, we've got our our demolition derby. Uh, uh, we've got a good lineup. Over or over thirty cars have pre-registered already for this weekend's uh, smash up. Uh, and, and that'll be taking place tomorrow and uh, and Sunday as well. So earlier Sunday during the day, if uh, if you can't make tomorrow night's show. 
And truck and tractor pull, always fun at a fair. Of course, yeah. We've got uh, uh, everything from vintage tractors to uh, to a couple of uh, pro stock modified. So there's different shows uh, and uh, usually runs pretty long show and, uh, you know, great to see if you like to see, uh, you know, older equipment and also some newer uh, high horsepower you know, thrillers. It's always fun to watch Junior take dad's tractor out of the barn and burn the heck of it out of it down at the country fair while he's not even aware until he's sitting in the grandstand and sees it. <laughs> well, yeah, as long as you're not popping a tire. <laughs> there you go. Oh, man. So uh, obviously still a very heavy agricultural element to this. That's the way all these fairs started way back when. Of course. That, that's our uh, that's our primary goal is, is agricultural awareness and, uh, you know, as well as fun entertainment. Uh, but uh, we try to keep the agricultural roots. How do you get the schools involved? Uh, so during the day, um, uh, when we're doing, we, we have our final setup during Friday, but uh, we have a lot of uh, agricultural displays where all the local schools, we get probably anywhere from 500 to 700 kids, depending on how many schools enroll. Uh, but there'll be uh, everything from uh, sheep shearing demonstrations uh, to uh, dog shows to uh, um, horse show, uh, just our horse demonstration, uh, riding demonstrations for the kids, tractor rides. Uh, we let them try things like this year. They were making their own butter. Uh, so different activities <laughs> like that that they can engage with and be hands-on. All, all right, give us the logistics one more time, when, where, and all that sort of stuff. So starting this evening uh, at 3 o'clock and then running till uh, till Sunday uh, at the Milton Fairgrounds, 136 Robert Street in Milton. All right, Vince Carrito with us, first VP of the Milton Fall Fair. It is the season. Get out and enjoy. Vince, good luck with the, this year's edition of. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. You might remember uh, there's a situation uh, last school year uh, with the teacher at Oakville Trafalgar High School. It led to bomb threats and all sorts of stuff happening. Um, now we have a heated situation developing around North, uh, Francis Henderson Secondary School. Uh, today saw the second bomb threat in as many days. Uh, and it seems the focus is on the teacher who made headlines last year while working at Oakville Trafalgar, who also got a bomb threat today, this morning. Uh, but working here in Hamilton, the teacher has attempted to move on with life and not be the center of attention. Um, and, um, and to put it bluntly, um, dressing like a teacher, per se. So there really is no issue here other than this reaction of some sort and in, in, in more, more chaos. Let's bring in Larry DeAnne, former mayor city of Hamilton, former principal at uh, Oakville Trafalgar secondary school. And here now, Larry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, Scott, I'm doing uh, just fine. Thank you. Larry, this is just getting out of hand. It seems like the extremists are, are just taking, um, uh, I don't know what they're doing, whether they're taking concerns and running with them or, or what the situation is, but it, it's, it's getting out of hand. And, you know, here's, it looks that this teacher is just trying to move on with their life and, um, and these situations are happening. What, what are your thoughts? Well, it's very sad. And, of course, the, the innocent victims in all of these uh, incidents are the students and the staff mm -hmm. um, at uh, Nora Anderson High School who deserve an education, who deserve a, a peaceful education, who deserve to uh, focus on, you know, the purpose of the school, which is to, to get them to learn things so that they can earn a diploma and move on with their lives as well. And so all these all these histrionics are very sad, especially for them. Now you know we we've seen this movie before, and and that is very sad. 
but as as has been noted, uh, this person who sort of brought things upon um, uh, that person's own self um, by dressing in very provocative ways um, when uh, when they were at uh, Oakville Trafalgar High School. I understand that is not happening now. Uh, this person is dressing as as a normal person would present themselves in a professional setting such as a high school and does not deserve this kind of harassment because of past behavior. So I think that, that really it's the extremists who are still trying to make a point, I guess, whatever yeah. that point is, uh, is lost on most of us because whenever you threaten violence and, and a bomb is the worst kind of violence, especially against children, uh, the, the point is lost. Whatever whatever philosophical point you, be may, you may wish to be making is mm-hmm. absolutely lost. And so this is a situation where the police need to step up, find these individuals, uh, punish them to the full extent of the law, and hopefully that will end the drama. I can't help but think, though, that uh, what seemed like a good idea at the time when the principal advised the community that this was happening, mm. that this person was returning to employment in Hamilton, I understand, and placed at this particular school, and it seemed like a good idea to sort of forewarn people May not be such a good idea in hindsight now, because really? <laughs> if this person was presenting normally, nobody might have known, and life would have gone on. But that's you know hindsight is twenty twenty, and then I'm not faulting the principal in the least, except to say that that this might be a sad byproduct of trying to be transparent and 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 upfront with with the with the community. But again, I, I repeat, um, nobody deserves this, least of all the children in that school and the other staff members. And this person as well is trying to conduct a professional business in the school now. And so the police need to step up and, and find the culprit. This seems to have started um, around the discussion of parental consent and when boards or teachers or cl- uh, schools tell parents about pronoun changes or any of that sort of thing. And, and the discussion basically turned, well, you know, if, if the kid's under 16, you got to tell the parents. And then from there, it kind of evolved or exploded into all of these wacky, uh, wacky accusations and assumptions that aren't necessarily even a part of the curriculum. Um, it, it seems that whenever concerns may be raised by a parent, that each group takes it and just runs with it, and we end up where we are now. Well, and we saw an example of that just a couple of days ago when yeah. Uh, yeah. two sides uh, met, in fact, up at the school board mm-hmm. uh, where where two opposing sides with different philosophies on, on how to handle some of these delicate issues confronted each other and had to be stopped by the police from from going at each other. It just shows the level to which we have sunk as a society in terms of civil discourse. You can't have you can't have an expression of an opinion without there being a a boomerang effect from another side that takes the opposing uh, view. Yeah. Um, and and it is confusing for people. Look, I, I'm all in favor 
of parental um, awareness about everything that's happening in their children's lives. And I say that not so that parents can, can be punitive towards children. In fact, I don't know of any parent who wants to be punitive towards children, but parents need to know so that they can handle situations uh, to the best of their abilities and seek help if help is needed um, for, for their children as well. But all of a sudden, you know, we've got all of these confusing uh, discussions that we're having. You know, what is gender and, and, and can one self-determine gender? And, and are we being transphobic and homophobic if we think that parents need to be aware of, of what their kids are feeling? Exactly. Uh, does the school have the right to protect that information from parents of all people? Um, so it, it's, it's a very confusing time, which distracts from the mission of the school, which is a sacred one, and that is to teach kids curriculum so that they can learn and be productive citizens, they can be publicly useful, privately happy, and on we go with life. We're in a strange time, um, Scott, for sure. Yeah, well said. Um, uh, is there something... Uh, because people are questioning the boards anyway, because there's been some boards, not all, but some that have been done some pretty questionable things uh, in the last little while. So I can certainly understand the apprehension there and, and the anxiousness of parents. But can government do something here by like, you, you know, here, here is the curriculum. Here is what we're doing and what we're not doing. And let's try to stick to the facts here rather than weaving a, uh, you know, a web or a tail that just divides everybody. Yeah, well, you know, the government uh, at all levels have a role. Uh, the provincial government sets the policies and the local government trustees implement those policies. The provincial government gives resources to school boards. School boards uh, allot those resources to their various schools, staff those schools with professionals, and focus on teaching the curriculum um, that's developed locally with provincial guidelines to the children. That's it. It's not rocket science. I did it yeah. for 30 years, yeah. and, 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 and uh, you know, I'm not a hero for doing it. I was doing the job that I was being paid to do, both as a teacher in a classroom, as a principal of a school. But somehow we've been distracted by the politics of this. Listen, I've spoken to some members of the public school board who are not happy with some of the trustees that they've got. They're afraid to say anything for understandable reasons. They don't want to lose their jobs, but they're not happy. And so what do they do? They simply hunker down, do their job, and try to stay away from the noise that's surrounding them, unless that noise is unavoidable, as it is at Nora Henderson high school because of, uh, you know, the very alarming bomb threats that have occurred. Parents as well, I'm told, are, are just looking after, the, as long as my kid's okay, I'm not going to rattle anything uh, beyond, beyond dealing with my students because I don't want any repercussions to come against them. So it seems as if, you know, whatever agenda, whether it's, it's the administrators have at the board level, or, or some trustees, not all trustees, but some trustees. In fact, I know the chair of the school board locally, um, a, a very good person who's focused on the right things, I think, uh, as have been some of the past chairs as well. 
Uh, they're not into all of these histrionics, but some are. And there are some others who are in politics who are, who are stirring the pot, I understand, uh, even with local school boards. And that's sad to say, because what it does cost, it takes away from that sacred mission of teaching kids. And that's the unfortunate part. Larry Diani with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, with his principal hat on, uh, talking about the situation around Nora Francis Henderson Secondary School. Larry, as always, difficult discussion. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. Minister of Education Stephen Lecce joins us. A tentative agreement has been reached with ETFO education support workers. This isn't the teachers. Uh, and Stephen Lecce, Minister of Education for the province of Ontario, here now. Stephen, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Yes, I am. Oh, thank you for joining us, Stephen. Tell us about this uh, this deal with the uh, or the tentative agreement with the education workers. This is the support staff that the ETFO uh, represents, correct? That's right, Scott. I mean, this is an important step forward when it comes to keeping kids in school. We are determined as a government to do that. I was just with um, you know Neil Lumsden uh, talking to Donna Scully. I mean, my colleagues and friends from Hamilton, and we've got the same objective here. It's stability for children. So yes, today we did sign a tentative agreement. We reached it with the ETFO education workers. This is sort of like the QP deal we landed last fall. This is good stuff. It just provides more stability, more certainty, and it makes the case that we can work together. When we put these kids first, we can get deals. I'm really excited about this because it demonstrates to us all that our government is determined to keep the kids in school, but also to get back to basics in Ontario schools as well. We've got a dual priority this fall. For Donna, for Neil, for myself, we're on a mission, which is to give young people skills and hope and economic opportunity um, so that they can you know, be optimistic again in this country. And so we've got a plan. We've got the investment. We've increased literacy and math focus in Ontario schools. And now we've signed another deal. And of course, we want to get them all done. So I'm urging all of my outstanding education partners, all the other unions, the teacher unions specifically, uh, to come to the table to sign an agreement that we've now landed with OSSTF, the public, uh, public high school teachers, English high school teachers. We want to do that with every union, the French, the Catholic, and the public elementary teachers. So, uh, look, today's a good step forward, but we still have more work to do. Uh, will the union come out and speak up, uh, not against this, but give their side of the story tomorrow? We remember last time when a tentative deal was reached and the union came out and said, wait, not so fast, not so fast. Uh, is this smoother sailing? I, I think so, because they've issued a statement and we're sort of on the same page here. We worked in good faith. We put the kids first. And look, we signed a deal that just makes sense. And I'm a big believer in that because, you know, at the end of the day, it isn't about me. It's certainly not about the union leadership. It's about children. They've been through a lot. And their mental, physical health depends on us standing up for them. And this government, the premier, and I have been very clear on this, that we're going to fight for kids. And so we've landed a deal with OSSTF, one of the biggest unions in Ontario, where education unions, tens of thousands of public English teachers, uh, high school teachers. And we signed a deal that says, look, we're going to keep negotiating in good faith. We're going to work hard. Whatever is outstanding, if we can agree on every issue, we now have a binding interest arbitration as an independent system, fair system, that will um, remedy those outstanding issues. So for me, that seems like sensible policy. And it's good uh, for the members because it provides them certainty, but it's especially good for the kids because their parents and the children know that no matter what happens, these kids are in school. And that's Obviously, we will uphold. 
Stephen, I just want to ask you one question. Well, obviously, we don't have much time. Uh, situations here that we've seen at OT and Nora Henderson uh, schools here in Hamilton. Obviously, uh, this situation has been resolved and moved on, but there's still some fringe groups that are fighting over what is in uh, education or the sex ed classes or whatever. Is there some clarity that can be put forth from your government on this to kind of, you know, uh, clarify for people what is being taught, what is not being taught? Because uh, there's a lot of misinformation going around. Yeah, I, I think it's important that we start the conversation off with the recognition that every child in the publicly funded school needs to be respected and affirmed. I mean, we don't we don't cherry pick here. Every child, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your faith or heritage or orientation or gender or your place of birth. Folks, this is Canada. We are an inclusive society. We respect each other. It's important we hear each other. And part of the challenge for a lot of parents, to be fair, is they feel like they're not being heard. And so we need to be this thing, you know, the concept of a civil society. We got to listen to each other, not speak through each other sometimes, even if it's even if it's difficult, even if I don't agree. Okay, so we all have a role to play here. To your question, yes, I have through a new bill, Bill 98, the Better Schools and Student Outcomes Act, now requiring school boards to do better work in consulting parents on the front end, and then creating parent guides to help sort of democratize, like, you know, create transparency, help parents and guardians know exactly what their kids are learning. So we're trying to create more awareness to empower parents to love and support their kids. And I believe the overwhelming majority of parents, that's what they're there to do. They're there to support their kids. They've got to be engaged, to support them, and to empower them to succeed. And so we are doing some of that. We're making this change. We're increasing the voices of parents in Ontario schools. The most important message I've heard from a family in Ontario is I want my kids' school to go back to basics, focus on skills development, give them competencies they could use in the economy to get a good job, own a home, live a life of purpose. That's exactly what we're doing. Reading, writing, and math is our priority. We're increasing supports, hiring 2,000 teachers this year, $680 million more this year than we invested last year. So it is a priority. And I think, look, we just have to remind ourselves, these are you know, obviously tough issues, but um, some respect, some civility, uh, decency will go a long way on this issue because we're talking about kids. These are real people. Um, and I just think, um, you know, we got to lean into those principles as a country, as Canadians, as a democracy. Uh, and we frankly have to learn from each other. And I think there's, there's a balanced voice that could be achieved if we increase that dialogue um, and uh, stop sort of accusing each other of extremism and just start to get in the business of meaningful engagement. And I believe we can be listening to each other. We should be doing more of that. And I'm going to be doing more of that to assure parents that we hear them and we want to make sure that their kids are supported, they're safe, and they're frankly set up to succeed. Stephen Lecce with us, Minister of Education, Province of Ontario. Stephen, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, a bombshell earlier today when Doug Ford announced uh, that uh, the province of Ontario rever- reversing its Greenbelt plans and said, that's it, not going to do it, broke the province, shouldn't have done that, and ain't going to do it again. What does that mean moving forward? Let's bring in Murtaza Hader, Professor of Data Science and Real Estate Management, Toronto Metropolitan University, and here now. Murtaza, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thank you for asking. I hope all is well with you as well. So far, so good, Martaz. So your thoughts on what happened this week and, and now what? Yeah, I mean, this is 
a sort of a self-inflicted wound um, <laughs> by the by the premier. Um, there was absolutely no need to have done that. Um, they knew. I mean, th- if you look at it, um, he during the campaign he was uh, caught uh, saying that uh, we will open the green belt, and then he saw the backlash and he said, "Nope, we're not going to do it." And, yeah. and that was a clear um, indication of where the electorate lies on this, irrespective of being on the left or the right. It turns out that the the majority of Ontarians, the majority of those who live in the Greater Toronto area, they feel strongly about the Green Belt. And so after learning that lesson once, um, then what happened afterwards, it's just unbelievable that you would go back the same path that you had to backtrack once before. And then now um, you've ended up with a scandal and in a scandal that has consumed the careers of two um, ministers already. Um, it may have others um, in, the, in the go because that those two documents, the one by the Auditor General and the one by the Integrity Commissioner, they're long documents, 160 pages, one and the other one is long. But but there's mm. so much of that evidence right there, which which seems suggests to me that um, we, we this is not the last thing on this this file. So now I think um, the fact that the the premier has uh, decided that uh, you know he's not going to do this, he's going to reverse the decision. It's a good decision, but this is being after being forced to play on the back foot. This is basically um, when you're cornered and say, well, if if I'm cornered and if I have no way out then I'm going to make this decision, um, which is the decision that can, that conforms with the ideals of the majority of the, the voters in your in your vote bank there. So I, I don't know. I think it's not smart way of governance. Um, it has also has, uh, discredited the, uh, the attempt to build more housing. Um, my fear is that in all this politics and uh, what will suffer the most is our attempt to build more homes um, at a massive scale, doubling the rate, I believe, uh, at which we were building homes. But with this kind of environment where there is a mistrust between the government and those involved in building and development, um, the electorate may feel that there's more of this going on. And, and the end result would be that we may not even be able to build as many homes that we built last year. Um, so this is certainly not going to help us with housing affordability. This is certainly not going to help us with building more homes and homes that are needed in Ontario, because that that equation hasn't changed. That equation where we have higher demand and lower supply, and we are still trying to provide more housing, that that situation, irrespective of what has happened in the last two, three months, is it hasn't changed. So I feel sorry for uh, for the Ontarians, because if you were expecting a relief through more supply in the shape of affordable housing, that 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 goal has been pushed months or years down the road. Um, uh, with all due respect, uh, respect, Merteza, um, uh, he didn't build it. He stopped. He changed his mind. He didn't double down, which many governments do. So I'm not sure how that hinders development, certainly in the in the medium and long term. Let me ask you this. The whole debate. No, I, I'm very I'm glad that that's what I said, that I'm yeah, glad yeah. that he actually has reversed. 
But I think that the decision came in a little too late. There's been some political capital lost in that decision making. The right decision made, but not necessarily yeah. at the right time. That's what I at, at this, this point, Murtaza, or weeks ago, Murtaza and, at this point, I don't give a rat's rear end about his political career or anybody else's for that. I just want the job done. Uh, that being said, does this debate about the green belt and now the fact that the green belt has been taken off the table, does this put even more pressure on the municipalities and the developers uh, to get that alternative lands developed, which they haven't been developed for the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, which has put us into this process. So the green belts off the table, does that put more emphasis on getting those white belts in, in other lands developed? That is true, um, that there will be more pressure now to densify or intensify. But you're absolutely right. If, if it was that easy to do, they would have done it five years, 10 years, 15 years ago. Um, the land that many people point out is available to build. Um, I think if it were that easy to build, they would have built. Somebody would well, have then why, Wait a sec, Murtaza. Why didn't they build? It's not that easy because there's government red tape, uh, municipal red tape, and developers sitting on land. So uh, how do you move that forward? Oh, this is going to be very tough. You, the the fact that there is red tape in the sense that it takes too long to get the approvals, um, then at this moment, in addition to red tape, in addition to the fact that uh, um, uh, there's nimbyism, people would try to block any construction or densification in their neighborhoods. You're also facing the reality that the cost of borrowing is too high. Uh, so builders who need to borrow, uh, they have to borrow at rates that are very high in, in relative to the, what the rates have been in the last five, 10 years. And you also have to realize that there's a shortage of labor. You also have to realize mm -hmm. that there's an extreme uh, significant increase in construction costs. So you put all this together and you realize that um, even if there's land earmarked for development, um, that may not be profitable to build at this stage, given all these uncertainties and, and constraints that we face. That being said, there still is a shortage, Murtaza, so somebody's got to fill that void. Yes, there is a shortage. I think the municipal governments have to come in and at least um, fight the fight with the with the NIMBYs and, and try to get densified uh, construction going. Because if the green belt is off, then whatever developable land is available in the, in the areas and places where we have already paved, um, we have to make that profitable. The, the distinction I want to make here is that just because you have a parcel of land designated for development doesn't mean that it's profitable to build. It's from a land use perspective, from a public sector perspective. Yes, you have said we have we have earmarked this land to develop, but from a profit point of view, from from the point of view of is it profitable to build the kind of development that has been allowed at the level of density that has been allowed? Uh, sometimes it, that's not necessarily the case, and that's a reason even if land is being earmarked for development, um, it doesn't get developed because it's not profitable. Murtaza Hader with us, Professor, Data Science, Real Estate Management, Toronto Metropolitan University. Murtaza, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Have a great weekend. You too. Um, I think it's not just nimbyism. It's also environmentalism. Nimbyism and environmentalism equals zero houses being built. She taught me a word from your mother tongue. Ayuinata. Ayunata, she said, the meaning of this word is don't give up. Don't give up, stay strong against all odds. And so 
Shall it be? Are you in Atta? Canada. Are you in Atta? Ukraine. Slava Ukraini. That is Ukrainian President uh, Zelensky entered the chamber of the House of Commons today to give our House of uh, House of Commons, sorry, House of Commons today to give his historic address to Canadians. Met with a minute long, a minute long standing ovation. It was quite emotional, and uh, Canada pledging another six hundred fifty million dollars in new funding to support Ukraine over three years. Uh, Arl Brown is with us now, Professor of International Relations, senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto, and with us now, Arl. Thank you for the time hope you're well thank you why the Zelensky tour right now is this a sign that perhaps interest in this war is waning people are becoming fatigued it is one of the issues when we look at the visit by president Zelensky to the united states he had a difficult time with some of the republicans because they are questioning whether there should be that level of aid continuing that the united states has been providing and in many ways that it itself has not been exactly adequate for the needs of Ukraine. We also see in Europe that there are more questions being asked. There's a dispute right now, very needless dispute, over grain sales between Ukraine and Poland that is endangering the transfer of, uh, transfer of weapons from Poland uh, to Ukraine. There's an election coming up in Slovakia where Robert Fico, a former prime minister, basically is very pro-Russian, and has suggested that he would cut off military aid to Ukraine. So when there is a friendly relationship at the level that Ukraine has with Canada, it was very important both symbolically and substantively to try to build on that relationship. And this is why we see uh, President Zelensky addressing Parliament in a very powerful, very moving way. Obviously, this war has gone on longer than anyone thought, especially Russia. Uh, been at this for a while, doing a lot of the same thing, it appears, more of the same. What's it going to take for a victory here? Because it seems at times we're just delaying the agony. What is it going to take to push this over the top and get a victory for Ukraine? Well, this has been indeed one of the issues uh, with some people who have been saying, well, are we just delaying the agony? There should be some kind of imposed settlement. Uh, of course, the problem with that is that uh, you can't impose a settlement if Russia doesn't go along with it. And there's no indication mm-hmm. that Russia would settle for anything less than the utter destruction of Ukraine, its government, and the subjugation of its people. And that would be the first step in uh, Russia's aggressive ambitions. So I think uh, it's not possible to negotiate with ourselves. And Russia is not prepared to indicate any kind of realistic uh, solution. So in that sense, uh, many have concluded that there is no substitute for victory. But victory is very difficult to achieve because Russia has had more than a decade to arm itself uh, very heavily. And this occurred just when the West had been busy disarming. Russia has uh, three times the population of Ukraine. They've had the advantage that... uh, when they invaded, Ukraine was not fully prepared. And then when Ukraine was engaging in a very successful offensive, a very rapid move uh, last uh, year in September uh, and beginning of October, then the West was very reluctant to provide Ukraine with the kind of heavy armaments that could have uh, uh, sustained the momentum 
Instead, much of the momentum was lost. Russia has had a chance to build very powerful defenses. And now, ironically, some people are saying, well, why isn't Ukraine doing more? Well, partly because we haven't done more. But Mm -hmm. Ukraine is making progress. And when we talk about the fact that this war has been taking a long time, it is terrible on the people, in terms of the people of Ukraine. It is really a, a loss also for Russia, for that matter. But in another way, this is also a positive element because it shows that Russia has not succeeded, that Russia, in fact, is failing. History and time is not on Russia's side, so there's a lot more we can do. And during this visit, as uh, was pointed out at the beginning of this program, Canada decided to give uh, uh, or at least commit to another $650 million. All this sounds really positive, but I'm wondering in terms of the actual needs of Ukraine, how far are we in Canada doing? Are we doing enough? And when I look at comparisons between what Canada is doing and what some other countries are doing, then the extremely supportive rhetoric that uh, we use and the tremendous gratitude that Ukraine rightly is showing us also camouflages the fact that we are significantly behind some other countries in terms of what we have done to help Ukraine. It seems at times we're waiting for something to happen to Putin, whether it's domestically he gets ousted or there's a coup of some sort or or, or what have you. Is that a strategy? It's very reactive, and it basically uh, a gamble. Um, you know, if we're going to be successful... We can't count on that. We have to have Ukraine succeed on the ground. And they are engaging in a significant offensive operation, which has been slow, given uh, what we just talked about. But it is making progress. And when we look at the total commitments, uh, Canada uh, has committed uh, something like $1.8 billion, And I'm looking at the figures put out by the uh, Kiel Institute for the World Economy, and because they have probably the best figures on the aid committed to Ukraine. When we look at the military aid in U.S. dollars, Canada has committed before this latest amount $1.8 billion, um, and a total of uh, about $8.5 billion in U.S. terms. But if you look at the total commitment, we are not only way behind the United States, which, of course, we can't match, or Germany, which has a larger economy, and UK that has a larger economy, but our total aid is less than that of Norway, a small country. When you look at what we have committed militarily, we are not only behind the big states like US, Germany, and UK, but our military commitment to Ukraine is less than half that of Norway's. It is about half of that of Denmark. It is about 65% 65% that of the Netherlands. So we're behind on uh, at that level uh, compared to small countries like Norway, Denmark, and Netherlands, which have much smaller economies than we have. And so it begs the question, if we want to see success, what are we doing to contribute to that success in Ukraine? Is the West as strong as it needs to be? We're hearing, obviously, issues with India, obviously the interference issues with China and such. Um, You know, we're hearing lots of chatter about the world order changing. Are we keeping up? We still have the potential to keep up because we have uh, the most modern, most vibrant, most resilient 
uh, economies. And if you look at our capacity, you look, you know, at Canada's GDP, we're a G7. You look at the the Europeans, uh, even though we are encountering all sorts of uh, economic issues, every country does, uh, we are not living up to our potential. I mean, we in Canada, we're not even spending the 2% guideline on the military. Our military is in a really sorry state. We have a great deal of uh, difficulty uh, guarding our uh, north, where the Russians are increasingly trying to take advantage of the Northern Sea Route, cooperating with China. So we have the capacity to do more, but uh, we need to have the political will to do so. And that's where the danger is, not uh, the uh, potential, but that uh, decision, because it is difficult to shift spending away from all social social goods, which mm-hmm. we would all like to support, whether it's education, healthcare, housing. But if we are not able to protect ourselves, then uh, those other goals will be very difficult to fulfill. And Russia and China have very aggressive ambitions. And many, I heard one pundit call uh, the military an insurance policy, which is an interesting way of looking at it as well. R.L. Brown with us, Professor of International Relations, Senior Member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Uh, Ukrainian President Zelensky speaking to the House of Commons today, a very historic address to Canadians and a long ovation. R.L., as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Hey, Scott, I've been listening to today's show, and you've made a lot of great points, but I think the smartest thing you said is Joe Walsh for president. (laughs) 